Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Small Council Radio. Today, we will be discussing the results of the NRG uh, top, Tabletop Simulator Tournament. We have with us Carlo from A Song of Ice and Fire Stats. Hi, Carlo. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having, back, uh, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> Great Yeah, talk. it's always a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And we've also got Clarence Lee, who is the first place finisher in the 64-man event. Hi, Clarence. Hey, hey. Hey, so you have never been on the show, so if you want to, real quick, you can uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, let them know your gaming background, how you got into A Song of Ice and Fire, and uh, what led you up to that big, strong first-place finish. <laughs> cool. Um, so I'm a longtime war gamer, and uh, I think like a lot of tabletop war gamers, I got into this hobby through Games Workshop Games. Uh, played a lot of 40K and fantasy and that kind of stuff. And uh, in particular, Fantasy was one of my favorite games. I loved rank and flank um, combat. I loved how position mattered a lot. And I was really sad when that game went away. Um, I was on the Canadian um, team for the European Team Championship at, at the time. And uh, the uh, Mantic, um, I guess, pr- developers were really smart. They were at the event, and with 8th Edition going out the door, they gave every participant a copy of their uh, rulebook for their game, Kings of War. So I got into that for a while, and I really enjoyed it, but it never really picked up in our area because it was just hard to kind of uh, get get the product and get the factions you wanted. Um, fast forward a couple of years, and uh, I, I saw the Kickstarter for Song of and Fire, and I was like, oh, it's Game of Thrones. I love the books. I love the show, and this looks like a great you know set of miniatures. Oh, my gosh, the game's ranking flank combat. That's awesome. And um, I brought it up to a friend of mine, his name's Rahul, and he was like, dude, I have that downstairs. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I've uh, got a gaming club, as you know, and, uh, you know, one of the guys got, got the Kickstarter. It's actually sitting downstairs right now. So immediately we rushed downstairs, and uh, we unpacked it all. We started playing, and right away we fell in love. And um, he was like, I love the mountain. That ro- I love the mountain. I want to be playing Lannisters. And I was like, okay, I guess it means I'm playing Starks. So... Uh, I've been playing Stark since then, pretty much. Um, right around launch, a good friend of mine, Fatty, got into the game. And uh, he is obsessed about, you know, all kinds of strategy games. And when he got he get, when he got obsessed with this game, we played, you know, like constantly for weeks on end, just getting to understand how the rules worked, how the factions worked. So he was my regular sparring partner in the beginning. And, uh, you know, we started playing at the club, local club, and uh, people started watching us play and... They saw how into it we were, and slowly our circle of friends got into it, and it grew and grew and grew. And I'm really um, lucky because my local area now, um, there's a couple of stores that carry the product. There's more gaming circles growing. And right before quarantine happened, there's probably two gaming stores that would run regular monthly tournaments. So um, we always had kind of competitive events to go to. And, uh, yeah, I've been just playing for over a year now and just sharpening the blade and refining my skills. Awesome. That's a, it's a kind of a familiar story. Um, yeah, of course, you've got your personal spin on it, but uh, a lot of the guys, yeah, like you said, have come from a uh, games workshop background, and I think the, the Song of Ice and Fire game is so brilliantly designed to focus on the strategy aspect more so than, than just building you know, that one Death Star unit that can take over the game. And so I think a lot of people have found uh, a Song of Ice and Fire is a very suitable replacement for 8th edition Warhammer. So 
definitely glad that you play, and we're definitely glad to have you today. <laughs> and uh, we've got the rest of the small council with us tonight. Everybody's on here, so it should be a really, really nice show. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, uh, and Carlo, as always, will be here to back up some of those uh, theories with uh, some stats to prove what's going on. So I guess to start it off, um, you you brought Stark. Um, if you want to kind of tell everybody what the list you brought was, uh, list one, list two, um, which game mode you deployed each list in, and just we don't we don't want to go over every detail, but just kind of give us a, a, a recap over, you know, what what strengths you saw with the list that you made and, and uh, why you played them and what factions you were able to beat, if you can remember all of that. Yeah, no problem. So I, uh, I brought Starks, as I mentioned, I've been playing Starks since the very beginning. Um, as strong as Starks are today, I'm not a bandwagon player and just jumped on them because they're good. I've, I've actually been playing Starks since the get-go. Um, so I've had a lot of practice. So when this tournament came about, I wanted to show my, you know, my, best, my best foot, as it were. I wanted to play the list that um, I was most familiar with. So um, there are six scenarios, and you know, there's a good mixture of scenarios that benefit a field commander and... Um, at least two scenarios being Darkwing's Dark Words and Game of Thrones that favor a non-field commander. So uh, right away, it meant that I was going to build a Howland list. And um, Howland is just, you know, great, not only because he's a free activation, his cards are very, very strong, and uh, he's great against other Starks as well. You know, um, I've been recently trying out Walder in my Howland list. So that list is, as my NCUs, Howland Commander, Walder Frey, and Sansa Stark. So Walder is just such a powerful piece. Not only does he help you kill enemy direwolves, he can also shut down key units at key times. And I really like Sansa because even though she's been recently nerfed so they can only pull from your graveyard, uh, it's still very, very strong, especially with Howland, because Stark cards are so good, you want to go through your deck as fast as possible to have all that gold in your graveyard. And then when it comes to my combat units, um, you know, most armies have to pick, do I take three NCUs or five combat units? And it's hard to take both. Uh, but with Starks, you can definitely take both quite comfortably. So I wanted to cram in five good combat units. <clears throat> um, two of them uh, are Stormcrows, and they're not fantastic on their own, but critically, they give you that one-point discount, and Starks have amazing attachments. So I get Mirror Reed in Stormcrow Archers, and I get um, Rickon and in the Enosha in the Stormcrow Mercenaries. And I want to thank my uh, gaming partner, Mike. He was the one who suggested that... Um, to me, the, uh, the Mira and the Stormcrow Archers, and it's been really paying dividends. Um, and my other three combat units are Berserkers with Hodor, uh, Berserkers Naked, and Naked Sworn Swords. And I've got the two dogs, Summer and Darble, uh, Summer and Shaggy Dog. So that's a 10 activation list, um, and it does stark things. It burns activations and waits for you to do your critical moves. Um, it slows you down with Howling cards. It does extra hits out of nowhere. Uh, so very good at controlling the table, very good at grabbing objectives. Um, my second list is Eddard, and um, it's a bit of a risk to take Eddard as your field commander because uh, there's two problems with him. The first problem, as most people know, is his cards are kind of revolved around him, and if he dies, his cards kind of suck. <laughs> um, and the other problem is if he's ignored, his cards kind of suck. But if you can get him into combat, his cards are quite amazing. Um, Fury for the Fallen is is killer, uh, and so is lead by example. So my field commander list is NCU-wise, again, I'm a firm believer in taking three NCUs. 
So I've got Sansa and Arya because they're three points cheap and versatile. And I've got Tycho Nestoris. And I used to run Caitlyn, um, but I found that, you know, to make sure Eddard lives, I just kind of want that safety net of having Tycho in the background. So he's there in case I, you know, get hit really hard by an enemy unit or if I fail a critical panic. He just kind of makes sure that Ed stays in the game. And then my combat units, I put Ed in Great Axes. And then as I mentioned, you know, the reason why is because if Ed can get in combat, getting repeated attacks off with Great Axes with Excrucius Fury can just lay waste to entire units in a single round. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's where his, uh, his bodyguard is pretty much. Uh, then I take Tully Cavaliers. And um, not only are they great because they're mobile, hard-hitting unit, if you combo with lead by example, they can easily do a one-two punch where Eddard activates, charges in, takes off a rank, and then with 11 lance attacks, those Cavaliers can finish off the unit and get you a pretty significant tempo advantage. Um, so the next unit is Hodor and Berserkers, kind of a staple. It's hard for me not to take Hodor and Berserkers. It's just such a versatile unit, mobile, uh, hard-hitting, also very defensive with the Hodor, Hodor, Hodor ability. And of course, it gets you an extra activation as well. And lastly, Rickon in um, Stormcrows again. Five points for two activations is a very, very hard thing to pass up. And uh, it's a nine activation list. So again, it does start things uh, as I'm sure most people are aware of at this point. Um, so yeah, those are my two lists. And, uh, you know, I'll be perfectly honest, as I kind of mentioned uh, in, a, in another show, I think, um, I got to see, you know, a, a quick glimpse of what people were taking before they hid what people were choosing. And I really, really hate playing Lannisters. It's the faction that gives me the most trouble. Um, and I saw quickly that, oh, there weren't a lot of Lannisters. And um, that kind of changed what I wanted to bring. Because my meta, I've got two great friends, Fatty Bunasar and Richard Schultz, who play a strong Lannister game. And uh, I hate playing against them. So <clears throat> it made... Uh, me change my army list in real life. I take less dogs. I take more dribble units. You know, they take the usual Tyrion nonsense with crossbows that get to shoot three times around. So things like berserkers, things like great axes can get killed by that. So in real life, my, my lists have changed. But online, I saw not a lot of Tyrion, not a lot of, Lannist not a lot of Lannisters. I can maybe take a more of aggressive list that uh, gets stuck in a little quicker. Um, my six games, uh, so the six modes, I pretty much for the most part, played my field commander in any scenario that benefits one. The only exception was game five against Larks, which I'll talk about, I guess, uh, when it gets to that. So my, <laughs> my first game, it was Dance of Dragons, and I played against um, uh, Spinster. And Spinster took one of the craziest armies in, I think, the entire tournament. He brought Starks with complete bowmen and NCUs, and that's, that's all it was. It, it, it was hilarious. And... Um, I got drawn up against him, and at first I uh, didn't know what to think, and then my imagination started going wild, and I thought, this might be a really bad matchup for me, because, you know, he can easily get three archer units drawing a bead on one of my units. He has Peter, so he can take the money bags, get a free shot, and I just imagine a hail of arrows ruining my, um, my units. But um, I really got to thank my friend Rowan Lahur. He probably gave me three to six practice games a week. And those games really made a big difference in making me understand the matchup and making me understand, um, you know, how to take advantage of my opponent's army lists. So pretty much, you know, while his lists had 
you know, interesting potential. Uh, the problem is that in Dance of Dragons, you've got to grab those objectives. And he was never going to grab those objectives um, since I have Tully Cavaliers and I've got Berserkers that are going to jump on him if he comes anywhere near the middle. So I was able to ward him away, grab the objectives, and my knights just plowed through to his archers and, you know, were able to connect and uh, tie him up. Um, my second game was against Salitva's Night's Watch, and it was Clash of Kings. And while all my games were, were tough and challenging, I have to say that Salitva's game was the hardest and definitely the one that gave me the most trouble. And the reason for that was because um, in my gaming circle, we don't play much against um, Alistair, and uh, we don't play against Hunters either. So I had no idea what they were capable of. And in my practice games, it wasn't really apparent either because my opponent, my practice opponent, didn't know how to take advantage of that list. So it was just nasty. And I, I, all the tricks that you can do with hunters and retreating and shooting and, and just being very slippery and hard to catch uh, really caught me off guard. Um, so it was the only game where I think I was behind in points from the get-go and was only able to kind of claw my way back and eventually um, uh, get, get, get ahead of him. The only reason for that was that Ed eventually got on an objective and Alistair never got on an objective. So I was able to get that two-point advantage in Clash of Kings and just slowly rack up. Uh, he also told me later he had a hard time against me and he said, you know, uh, the only thing that kept him in the game was the respawning. And I said, well, same. Like, he probably killed Ed at least twice. So that was a really bloody back-and-forth game and uh, he was an excellent player. Um, the third game was, I believe, Dark Wings, Dark Words and I played against Mahoney's Law. And uh, we were lucky, you know, um, because we didn't get any of the crazy objectives and uh, we didn't really get a lot of points until the second half of the game. And uh, I pretty much did start things, slowly encircled him, stayed out of his scorpion's range. And um, I knew his deck, too. You know, one of the things is that I've had so much practice against Night's Watch. I've got a great opponent, his name's Anthony Lamena, um, <clears throat> that I know most of their tricks. So one of the uh, rounds, he charged ghost into the front of my berserkers and i was like why would a player do that i still can take the swords i can still just attack and kill it and i realized oh he must have watcher in the wall he wants me to punch this dog and then he'll get a free march into my flank somewhere and just kill me so i made sure not to attack the dog until um he had fully activated and of course being a stark i can i have the activations to do that so i, I kind of knew his tricks i was able to stay out of range of the scorpion and uh, slowly just encircle him and, and, and take over. Um, my fourth game was against the border, um, Lockie Carter from Australia, and we played Feast of Crows. And that was a really, really tough game, and a game that had me very nervous because um, I hadn't played against Rob Stark leading Tully Cavaliers. And in my practice games, the combination of Sudden Charge into a unit and then hit and run. So you get to hit with knights, pull back, and they're still unactivated was a real eye opener. And um, it was a very cagey kind of game. And right from the get go, he chose his list had six activations uh, on the table compared to my five, which meant that he could also out, uh, out fight me on the table. And I saw that he had put his archers on one flank guarding his commander behind a palisade. And I said, well, I'm not fighting that side. That's just a death sentence. So I deployed on the other flank, and I slowly sorted my army towards that flank. And the only reason why I was able to take advantage of him uh, was two reasons. One, he exposed a dog, 
and I was able to devastating impact into the dog, get a kill, and then get ahead in points. But also, he made a mistake um, where he was considering activating his Outriders or his NCU. He decided on his NCU, but accidentally clicked his uh, Outriders. So he lost an activation, and neither of us noticed until it was way too late. So that, you know, was significant as well. Um, the second last game was, what scenario was it? That was, uh, oh yeah, uh, Fire and Blood. And it was a stark mirror match against Larks. And we both decided to go with our Howland lists, despite the fact that um, Fire and Blood, you know, usually you'd recommend a field commander. But we both knew that the person who got act- activated would be controlled by the, uh, by the opposing player. So we both went for our Howland list. They had 10 activations. They both had Walder. And uh, it was a, you know, tense game at first. And um, kind of like the border, he exposed one of his units, the Cranog men. They came forward, and I was able to jump on them with Berserkers, take him out. And then from then on, he was kind of on the back foot. He was charging in piecemeal and trying to recover. And I was able to just sort of slowly eat up those units back up and, and make him, you know, force bad plays. Um, and in the last game, it was Game of Thrones against uh, Stannis 1000, and that game was also very close, but at the end of the day, that is a mission that favors Starks. Um, I have more activations than him, I've got more units that can hold objectives, but he easily could beat me, you know, because I didn't notice that his Rose Knights can double march, pivot, and pretty much contestant objective. For me to grab the midline objectives at that point, I'd have to charge his Rose Knights, and that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Um, so I was lucky that turn one, I was able to pull out craps. I slowed down the middle unit, and uh, turn two, right away I used Sansa to redraw that card and slow down Renly from taking the center. And it meant that over you know two turns, he literally moved 10 inches in total, when that was key for me to hold the center. Um, like my other opponents, he kind of exposed Brienne, and I had the right combo of cards being switched to Devastating Impact to charge her and one-shot her, and that just let me surround one of his Rosette's units slowly grind away. So, um, you know, the games went well, uh, but again, mostly because of practice, and uh, it's interesting that this format gave you a whole week between games so that you can learn a matchup uh, and get some practice games in. Yeah, it's it's definitely something I took advantage of as well. Um, Yannick Berg from uh, Tabletop Warden was gracious enough to give me at least one practice game uh, just to kind of get comfortable with that list. I, I don't see that as an issue. I think it was actually something really cool because uh, it ultimately led to people being able to, you know, get a, get a taste for that list, and then ultimately it came down to the player's skill and kind of remove that element of surprise from the list. So I actually do like the fact that we were able to get some practice games in. Um, so Dave, I'll call on you because you have been a Stark loyalist from the beginning as well. I just kind of have played them from time to time, did happen to run them in this event, but you've been with them since the beginning. What, what do you make of his list? And uh, do you just generally agree with the way he played them? Uh, yeah. I mean, like you were saying, I've played Stark since uh, they dropped, and I play every faction, but they've always kind of been my main faction that I've taken to every big tournament. Um, and Holland and Eddard from the get-go were always uh, among my favorite commanders. It was, you know, Eddard 
followed by Holland uh, for a long time. It wasn't until I kind of uh, stumbled upon Blackfish that he kind of made top. But Eddard and Holland always still remained second and third for me. So it's no surprise to see that, you know, these two commanders came out on top. Uh, and your list, I mean, I would have to say uh, they're not really my play style, but the way, you know, you described your tactics, it you know, it it makes sense now that you explain how things worked out. Um, and especially when you're mentioning uh, Ghost uh, charging into you and you suspecting, you know, Watcher on the Wall, I mean, that kind of lends to even the Stark's old, uh, or even, you could even say current strategy of, throwing a dire wolf to get uh, winters coming to unactivate to finish off a unit too. So I think the, the tactics of, you know, doing that with ghost, uh, you're as a Stark player, you're even without knowing the night's watch, you know, in and out, usually you can kind of figure out that they're going to be doing something in that regard with sacrificing a wolf, if it's too obvious. Uh, so like, Anytime I set, and I realized this pretty quick a long time ago, so I kind of changed up my strategy that anytime I would sacrifice a wolf, I knew I had to make it not super obvious. Otherwise, I could be sacrificing him for no reason. Um, so, yeah, Watcher on the Wall, it can be devastating, and it was nice to see that you're able to catch on to that. I want to um, say that uh, I was watching one of uh, Brett's games and talking about, you know, sacrificing a wolf. I saw him run a wolf into a stake deliberately just to play North Remembers and reactivate a key unit, and it blew my mind when I was watching that. <laughs> that, that, was, yeah. that was really, really, really rude of me. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I needed to do it. Uh, Carlos on the chat here, he was actually in the stream watching the game, and I saw when I went back and, and uh, read some of the comments – Carlo was like, that is a very, very aggressive play. And, like, I can hear his voice saying that. And uh, (laughs) it's it's interesting that you bring that up because it was definitely a bold move, but I really felt like I needed to kill those bastard girls. And it it felt like the appropriate play at the time. You know, you say that, but uh, I could just imagine it being in the show, like, you know, the HBO show, just Rob given the stare at Grey Wind, Grey Wind looking back and then just running into some spikes and then Rob going, all right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the North remembers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is just like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, I, I, so, think, uh, I think George, George from Three Sales was commentating the game and he was like, I think he was kind of in disbelief as well. He was like, he's running his dog into the stakes and oh he's playing the north remembers <laughs> like oh man <laughs> um i did want to mention just so anyone listening out there uh brett did take second uh in the tournament so we just uh you know ironically were able to get first and second onto the show because you know brett decided to hold back on the alcohol tonight so that he could uh you know lead up on the hosting but uh yeah, that was definitely a power play for sure. Um, uh, but, yeah, Carlo, I wanted to ask you, though, about uh, Walder and uh, his impact uh, through the stats uh, side of things. 
Yeah, so Walder yeah. um, was in a lot of lists, and um, he was uh, pretty popular, uh, both in Starks and outside of Starks. But as we all know, that it's quite likely that his main use is to play into that direwolf um, kind of activation control that a lot of Starks are playing. But it's great that he has those other secondary uses of being able to shut down those elite units too. Walder has significantly the highest win rate of any NCU in the tournament, uh, winning 68% of all his games across, you know, over 200 results across the six rounds. He is doing incredibly well. The, the, the next, the next, um, NCU behind him is who, who sees significant play. Obviously there are some who have very small amounts of results, but really, the the number two behind him is no surprise that it's actually Varys who comes in at 62%. But that's a significant drop-off between them. And everybody else is down below 60%. And those two stick out as these are the most significant thing that you can buy that will give you good chances of winning. <clears throat> that's interesting because... Um... I mean, I, I, I get why Varus is really popular, but I uh, personally don't like to take him. And the reason why I don't like to take him is because of tournaments. In tournaments, you can't have a bad game. Um, I mean, I'm pretty competitive. I always want to play for first place. And I've played games where Varus goes 1-4-4 four four or 0-4-4 four four sometimes. And that's a pretty feels-bad moment. And I, I don't want to spend four points on a guy who can crap out and cost me a round. So personally, I like to take... NCUs who are more consistent. I'll take guys like Tycho, who will guarantee heal me five wounds. Uh, Caitlin Stark, even, who will let me fight at full power, move a token. Um, so, you know, I, I get what people use them, but personally, in a tournament, I can't have a bad round, so I can't rely on, on him to, uh, to do his thing uh, consistently. Interesting. For me, like subjectively, he has um, he actually has a really great psychological effect of um, forcing your opponent into taking onboard activations when they would like to take um, a zonal effect. They would like their first activation to be a swords, but um, they're unwilling to risk the two in three chance that actually you'll just deny the activation at all. And so they're forced to activate this unit as their first activation, giving you giving up swords and um, all the things that come with controlling that zone. So I think that Varys has this secondary effect beyond his active ability of kind of forcing your opponent to play things that they didn't want to play. But it's really interesting you mentioned Tycho because Tycho of the the NCUs that was significantly played, he was the worst performing NCU. He only won 38% of his games and he was generally doing very badly. Hmm. Yeah, and I definitely agree that uh, the psychological effect is the real thing. You know, sometimes um, at the start of three, like if I go first, normally turn three is when the action is really starting to heat up. Uh, and you want to take that sword to get that first activation, that first punch in. And, and he does deter you from doing so. Um, so I, I can definitely respect Varus on my opponent's side. But I just feel like on whenever he's on my team, at some critical moment when I need him to block the zone, he doesn't do it. And I just, I can't rely, I can't uh, live with that personally. <laughs> It's, it's Interestingly, interesting. Brett I... asked me just the other day. Um, he Brett Brett asked me. He was looking at maybe Varus's use as a counter to Starks, but actually across the tournament, Varus's worst use was into Starks. It seems that either players are unable to predict the time when sudden charge might come out, or if the card actually exists, or just the problem is that they 
can't stop the sheer amount of important plays that the Starks can make that they run out of tokens and he's just not having the effect he needs because Starks is a really, really bad matchup for Varys. I think the interesting yeah. thing is you, you, you've both given, given your take on Varys. I, I ran him in both of my lists and uh, I've been running Varys since the beginning of the game because I started with Tyrion. The, the interesting thing is I justify taking Varys because I put a lot of stock in card control. So when I run Varys, I'm, I'm very well aware that he can fail a lot of the times. He actually did fail three of the four rolls for me in my last game. Uh, and I was, I was able to overcome that. But, but for me, it's hard to justify not bringing him because I, I feel like if I use Varys to stop the letter uh, even two or three times in the whole game, even if I fail the other two or the other one, if I stop four card draws and the token – it is entirely worth it to me. I, I'm sold out 100% in my belief of the tactic zone, and being able to deter my opponent from taking the tactic zone is 1,000% worth bringing Varys, in my opinion. Uh, the worst thing about Starks, besides Starks being powerful, is a, a Stark player with a handful of cards. And any time I had a, a big hand with you know, five or six cards, it always ended up that I had the combos that I needed, and it ended badly for my opponent. So I'm just 1,000% on, on the side of cards, particularly in the hand of Stark players. Yeah, and I, I totally respect that as well. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and to Carlo's point, I did notice that, you know, when my opponents had Veritas, sometimes they would burn out their tokens by turn two. And then you've got this four-point NCU who doesn't do anything for the, you know, two-thirds of the game. Um, and that, that's a real thing, too. So, um, yeah, different experiences, different, uh, different uh, impacts. I think from um, when when Clarence was talking about the tournament, there there, there are loads of really interesting things there. Um, so I think what's been so interesting about this event is first, you know, he talked about his, his local meta and the players that he's played against and the experiences he has. And it's been a really interesting clashing of different metas, both like European meta and US meta, um, but also just like local groups. Like, so it is. Other, other than maybe some discussion on the internet and a small amount of uh, battle reports that you might be able to see, it's been very difficult up until now to understand how other players are playing if you've never seen it. And it's been a real eye-opener to me because I've never seen Starks played to this level that they have in this tournament. I saw the Masters of Westeros results. Um, I saw how Starks there took the top three spots. They've taken top three spots again here at this event. Um, and now I've managed to see them both through uh, watching Twitch and commentating on the games myself, but also seeing the lists that they're playing and understanding those other metas. I realized that this is just a play style that I've never seen in the UK myself. And I, it's given me a whole new understanding of the game. I think that that is partly this um, this one one week format. I think it's really been brilliant to allow players to prepare for these games. And what we've seen is, in most cases, we've seen the two players perform as well as their lists possibly could perform, rather than us seeing who's having a good day, who's tired towards the last game of of, of a really busy tournament format. You know, we're seeing players on their top form 
really going at it. And we're seeing which lists are really, really cutting it at the very top when you have time to prepare. There's no surprises. And, and we're also seeing players who are preparing in that way have a really competitive gaming group. So they have a really good range of experience to practice against. We're seeing all that homework really paying off. And I watched most of Clarence's games, particularly at the back end of the tournament. And his play was phenomenal it was it was flawless i would say you know and there were some strategies which i just never considered you know his game against uh, locks i found particularly impressive with the the terrain setup that he had created the way he dominated the space but there were so few times i've commented quite a few of the games and there's nearly always a point at which i can say i think this move was wrong and i would rather have seen this move get done even small things like i would rather they align 50 percent to the opposite side that could cost them down the line and yet when clarence played i was like there is nothing different i would do here this is near perfection brilliant result <laughs> and really well deserved win well thank you very much that's very very flattering for you to say that um i definitely made a few small mistakes here and there uh but you know thankfully they didn't catch up to me too badly um and i want to you know reinforce that you know, getting a week to practice and mentally prepare yourself is completely different um, than in a regular tournament. Definitely the Clarence you saw uh, in this event is not the same Clarence who plays in a regular event. He's much sloppier in a real game. When he's played three or four games, he's standing on his feet, and uh, you'll, you'll see a lot more flaws in real life, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with both of you. And I was, personally, I was rather fond of the, the TTS event, and uh even as things pick back up and game stores open up, I will definitely be interested in participating in further TTS international events. But I think uh, really quick before we leave the subject too far behind, we've got Justin on the show and he is a, he is a neutral player. And I know that he's very, very, very fond of uh, Varys and Tycho and Walder as well. So just real quick before that subject is too dead. Uh, I just want to get his take on, on what he's done because Justin has come to Indy and he's consistently placed in the top five in our tournaments with his all-neutral list, and he's always run combinations of Varys, Tycho, and Walder. So maybe, Justin, you can give us a, a, a little bit of uh, perspective on that and, and how you're using Tycho to such such success. Well, I think I would have to say I was using Tycho to, such, to success, uh, but that's because he was invaluable with Slademan because five points of Slademan is almost five points. Uh, I wouldn't say he's uh, bad right now. I think in neutrals he kind of struggles because uh, right now I, I feel like um, competitively in an all-neutral list you don't have a lot of units to choose from, and they generally are very uh, low armor, so he's not as efficient. However, I still really like him, and I used him a lot before, especially when he came out, which I believe was the weekend that we came out there, if I'm not mistaken, because we bought our boxes from Shane, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but, but, uh, yeah you... You actually turned me on to Tycho, for the record, and I was I was running him with my Jon Snow Night's Watch list in conjunction with Amon, and I, I had a lot of success with him, Gross. but I talked <laughs> way to fucking much, so I want to hear from you. So. Yeah, that was, that was that sounds disgusting. Um, but Varus, I've been a huge fan of since day one. Uh, I kickstarted the game, so I've been playing neutral since day one. I think I played like two Lannister games maybe first, but... Uh, even with his nerf, I used him a couple times when he was, you know, everyone hated him and he was worthless. I still found some merit in him, um, but now I find a ton of merit in him. 
just like before. I love the I've always loved the Peter Taika or uh, Peter Varus combo, so I've done that tons of times. Uh, and then Walder, I think I'm not like a guy who uses uh, the same list a lot, but I have one list that I made. I don't know two tournaments ago, maybe maybe our last tournament. I forget, but it's a Roost list, and it is a list that I think I'm going to be keeping around for a really long time, if not forever, because it it does consistently well against most factions. And it's Roos, Walder, and Varus. And then, what, like, all vanilla units. Two Bastards Girls. Oh, no, two Bastards Girls with uh, Stormcrow Lieutenants and three Cutthroats. And it is a fantastic list. All it does is make your opponent hate you with a passion. <laughs> they can't do anything. Uh, unless you're me and you never draw Calculated Cruelty, and then it's not that bad. But... Uh, that list I, I, I love a lot, and uh, it doesn't surprise me at all to hear Walder Frey do really good, especially right now. I think there's there's every list has like a key unit that it revolves around, so if you shut down that key unit, then it's it's a big kick in the face. Unless you're fighting Targaryens with horses, because then he's not very useful at all. Didn't do anything. All I really got for that, though. Okay. Well, the next thing I want to transition to is uh, it's interesting that Clarence faced uh, Baratheons in the final match. I was uh, rather impressed, but not overly surprised, that Stannis made it all the way to the top table and was playing for first place. I was kind of unfortunate enough, I suppose, to play to play Baratheon three different times. Um, <laughs> and wow, with with the with the Rose Knights, the uh, some of their new NCUs, the hero boxes, and uh, I didn't have to face the Relore Faithful, but I think they're a phenomenal unit. Um, I did have to face them three times. I think Carlo can maybe confirm this for me, but I think overall I played them in round one uh, in Dance with Dragons, and I think as a faction overall they didn't do too well in that round. But playing them in the other the other scenarios, I faced all Renly lists, which it sounds like that's what you faced as well, Clarence. Uh Baratheons are definitely a force to be reckoned with, and I know that a couple of our co-hosts on here play Baratheons as well, but I think it's definitely worth touching on the subject that Baratheons went from largely being considered the worst faction, and then in this event, they were kind of a terror for everybody who had to play them. Um, Even if they didn't necessarily win the game, they were a very, very, very tough opponent to bring down. I know in my games it was, uh, some maneuverability and some some really nice card combos with winners coming that was able to kind of bring them to their knees, but they were definitely far from far from an easy opponent as what they were considered before. So I guess we we start with you, Carlo. Is is a uh, is my first statement correct? Did they overall as a faction perform kind of underwhelmingly in Dance with Dragons? Um, yeah, Dance of Dragons, not great for them because they don't really have the maneuverability to get up there and grab the tokens quickly enough. But, I mean, actually, the surprise, the big surprise, considering how popular they were, when you think about how popular they were, it's unsurprising that you managed to get a Baratheon into the final. They were the second most popular faction. If we didn't see a Baratheon player in the final, then it's a really damning statement for how bad the faction are, because if they are being picked that often, they should be up there in the top bracket. But actually, when you look at all the games across all the game modes, Baratheons were the second worst performing faction. They were terrible. 
actually, <laughs> Inter interestingly, of the commanders that were even more terrible than average. It was Renly in both forms. Renly, charismatic heir, he was played 24 times, and he only wins one in three games. That is one of the worst performing commanders. And when you look at the badly performing commanders, he's by far the most chosen of the bad commanders. So even though, like you stated, it can be a really tough game. It can be really hard to play into these Rosanites. You are one slip up away from like just throwing units away and them healing back up. And it can be an uphill battle. But when it comes to the crunch, they don't actually win that often. They're not doing as well as they should be. And I'm actually a little, a little bit nervous for the faction in terms of competitive standpoint. I think there was a distinct lack of um, experience from the players entering the tournament with uh, various list building for the Baratheons. A lot of the units would have been the first time these players ever got to use them. Um, I think they're really going to take time for players to get used to them. But I think that there are some things, particularly in the Starks, which just take them apart. And there's almost no level of ability that a Baratheon player can put onto the table, which outplays an equally well-played Stark player. So, um, unfortunately, the stats say Baratheons can't really compete right now. And I think when you look at it carefully, Stannis' Thousandth Lord Commander's route to the final was not lucky in terms of, oh, he, he was lucky to be able to, um, you know, he, he's not good enough to be in the final, but he's lucky in the matchups and the factions that he played against to be able to make it there. If I think he'd played into more Starks more often, then you would have seen him lose um, at an earlier stage and we wouldn't have seen him in the final. So what's your take on, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Clarence, did you play them once just in the finals or did you end up playing them more than once? I apologize for having that. <clears throat> yeah, no worries. Uh, it was just once in the final and, um, uh, you know, I, I played a lot of games against my sparring partner to get ready for it. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I got to really know their deck inside and out and know their tricks and it gave me healthy respect for what they can do as well. Um, but, you know, once you learn what they can do, it's up to you now to play around it. So as, as Carlos said, you know, you don't want to attack Rose Knights into the front. And uh, when they have such expensive units, seven points minimum, um, with Bastards, Girls, and so on, they're going to have a very small footprint on the table. And almost any faction can outmaneuver them and surround them. Um, the other problem, too, with Rose Knights is they don't really get scary until they're damaged. So if you can get on an objective with a durable unit, let's say Veterans of the Watch or uh, Tully Sworn Shields or even Lancer Guardsmen perhaps, you know, you can do a surprising, um, uh, you can last for a long time without taking a lot of damage. It's only when they start, you know, putting on the stag resilience and they start, you know, uh, dealing a wound, healing a wound. Uh, and passing morale checks, that they start to really chip away at your, your wound total. So um, I can see why they're struggling, and I think, you know, as people learn how to uh, work around them, um, it, it does look tough, because the game is mostly objective-based, and you have to get there. And the movement of four, it's not easy. But it means that they have to adapt, you know. Um, Stannis did a great job of prioritizing the horse against me, and the second he took that as his first activation, I knew he knew how to play. 
because again, common common knowledge is that you should take the envelope. But with Elden, you don't need the envelope, and you need to get on that objective. So um, maybe they should have to adapt as well. Yeah, and 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 I know we've got a couple of Baratheon players, and I think it's interesting because a lot of the conversation on some of the main Facebook groups and a lot of these subgroups that I see on Discord. A lot of people are feeling that Baratheons are, are perhaps overpowered, a little bit overtuned. But, you know, as Carlos said, the stats are indicating that, that while they do look good on paper, they can be played around. And obviously I, I went 3-0 you know, against them. That's not to say that, that they're not a tough faction. They were very hard-fought games, but they're, they're definitely beatable. So I want to transition over to some of our other co-hosts. Uh, let's go over to Jose. Um, you've been playing around with the Baratheons. Uh, what what would you say you've been doing to be successful, or have you have, have have you found that that some of this discussion and some of this talk about them being really powerful is it just is it just a lot of uh, reading into it and, and taking it at what the cards values are, or have you found that they're they're pretty strong for you on the field? Um, so for me, I think they're pretty strong. Uh, I like them. Granted, I play the Stannis side, which I know most people play the Remy side of things, but. Um, Overall, I, I mean, whether you're playing Stannis or Renly, I think they're a good faction. Um, here's the thing with, with the factions. So I think we mentioned before that any of the, like, OG factions, um, people have been playing them the longest, right? So I think that's why, you know, it's a, you know Starks, for example, are still, like, on top and stuff, for example, just because, like, they're, they're one of the OG factions. Um, but with, with Baratheons... Um, they just they take work. So I know when I first got them, um, I didn't win any games for a while. Like it took me a while to start winning games because like I had, was playing Starks, and they're completely different. And I think the biggest problem with the, not really a problem, I guess the wrong word, but the biggest um, area that I guess to watch out for when you're starting this faction is the fact that we, and we again we talked about it that their cards have a lot of the same triggers. So it takes a while and to, for someone to, one, develop their play style, so that goes for any faction. But not only that, but two, they have to learn when to use certain cards and, like, and to, to maximize on their situation. Um, so I think that's, like, where the biggest learning curve is um, with them. And then I think that, you know, if people are not as experienced or haven't put the work into the, the army, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not as much of a threat, but I think if someone um, learns all that really well, can deal with their slow movements and whatever, I think that you can definitely have a hard time against them uh, if you're playing against them and, and if you're using them, a lot of success. Um, like I said, now I do a lot better with them, and I win a good chunk of my game. Um, I mean, granted, I still haven't played um, like Dave Meckler or anything yet, um, against his like Stark list or whatever, but uh, I, I do I do really well and I feel like I've improved and um, and uh, I think they have a lot of um, a lot of potential. I just think I think um, we need, they need a little more time, I guess, for the stats to really like uh, you know bump up and um, you know because I, I think it's also even easy to pick out if someone really knows the army or like is just kind of like. Just starting out with them, and essentially, essentially, um, you can kind of tell. So I think, I think, um, all, obviously, all the factions have a learning curve and things like that. But I think, uh, in my opinion, 
Um, like free folks have the highest learning curve. And then I, I would even argue that Baratheons may have the second highest learning curve. Uh, that's just my opinion. Either them, them or Targaryens, I guess. Um, so yeah, they take work. So I, I think if it's a faction you're interested in or a faction that, you know, we're waiting to see how well they're going to do. Um, I just, I think it needs more time, uh, to get a true judgment or for people to, to like really work at it. Um, because like, I, I know, like, since since they've come out, I haven't even touched my Starks. Just because, like, I had it in my head. I'm like, all right. Because I was getting frustrated. I'm like, okay, I got to just, I got to use this faction. Like, I got to just, just play this faction and get really good with this faction. And um, it's definitely helped me a lot, just, like, zoning in on that faction and just really, like, working with them. And, and I've won, like, a lot of games with them, so. For me, yeah, I think that the on. tactics charge trigger that you mentioned is like definitely the thing that is holding them back right now. The thing that people are finding the hardest. If you if you look at the um, the final that Clarence played against um, Stannis towards the second half of that game, Stannis has uh, I believe like twelve cards in his in his, in his hand. He plays Elden Estamont. Um, he's been drawing two three cards every single turn. He has twelve cards in his hand, and yet he's still unable to activate a single trigger because Clarence understands and knows what triggers he is likely to have and therefore plays around them. And as long as um, the Baratheon opponent starts to understand the Baratheon deck and understand the way the Baratheons play, I think that the Baratheons are going to have a really tough time. If you play into what the Baratheons want, then Baratheons are so strong. No wonder you don't like playing into them. No wonder people are having problems. They're, 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 they're really struggling against these Rose Knights. They're really struggling against Renly, Lord um, Charismatic Air. Because if you play into him and give him what he wants, which is to charge him, particularly in the front, but even sometimes in the flank, if you charge him and attack him, he's just going to say, I've got all the perfect counters to this. But if you don't give mm-hmm. him that opportunity, then actually he, he, he doesn't really have any way to kind of push back against you. And, and that's, that's where they're falling down right now. Champions of the Stag, maybe, maybe they will have that little bit more movement and be a bit more aggressive. But I think that all the interesting stuff for me right now is on the Stannis side. I think that um, the Rose Knights are interesting. But I think it's a bit of a trap. It, it, it's very hard to play into the current meta with Rose Knights because the current meta is um, fast, high activation, and uh, and aggressive. Yeah, no, for sure. I I uh, I, tell, I definitely see your point. I think, with, as far as like Rose Knights go, I think or anything that's any unit or anything like we talked about Varus, that's kind of like. If you play into it, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time. I think you just as a player like who's using them, you have to kind of use the psychological aspect of it to overcome that. Um, and that's something that again it takes work and practice before you can kind of get that down and be able to like read the situations properly. But I think that's that's like the way to overcome any unit or MCU or anything that has like the traditional like oh I'm definitely not doing that or else I'm screwed, you know. One uh, small thing I wanted to add was that, uh, you know, with the newer factions, uh, the stats you have to take with a small grain of salt uh, just because they are newer. Uh, you got less units. You got a new play style because, you know, let's be fair, pretty much every uh, every faction is, you know, unique. 
grant you, you can make some close to each other uh, in the way that they play, but they're unique enough that any newer faction, especially with everything going on, you know, things just finally starting to open up for some places, you haven't gotten nearly as many games as you would like. So uh, a lot of the stats are going to be uh, even, you know, either inexperienced players or even experienced players that just have not gotten the hang of them yet. So I think uh, the stats will definitely start to flesh out uh, in the next couple months once things start opening up and people start to, you know, get to play them a bit more. Then, it, you know, with new units coming out, for example, Targaryen still only sitting on uh, the starter box, you know, naturally they're not going to be uh, nearly as good as the other factions. But once, you know, let's say the two Unsullied units come out, the hero box comes out, I think that'll be enough to start, you know, taking you know, their faction as a whole more uh, seriously with the stats because they'll be not necessarily on an even even uh, playing field as the other factions, but a lot more, you know, the, the power gap will be a lot less uh, than it is now. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about the stats is, um, and, and, and really interesting about Song of Ice and Fire in general, is that when we collect loads of statistics and we have enough games, we can start to like find some imbalances. We can start to look for things that have higher win rates and things that have lower win rates. But when it comes down to it, thanks to both the way the game plays, which is really tactical, really deep, and also because of the two-list format and the understanding. We, we heard earlier about how Clarence um, talked through his decision-making into picking certain lists into certain game modes. Um, it's understanding your list, understanding your opponent's list. This, the game is still so, so skillful, and so, there are so many opportunities for the better player to win the game, even if they have, statistically speaking, the worst commander, statistically speaking, the worst faction. The worst faction in the game is still winning games. The best faction in the game is still losing games. And that's because there is still huge, huge amounts of player skill involved. And, uh, and that's what's brilliant about it, you know. What we look for is when trends become repeatable. And there are some of them, you know. They're starting to push towards the top. You know, Starks, one, two, three, two big tournaments in a row. Um, and repeatedly, Baratheons didn't do that well. And my, I would point towards their difficulty of triggers, which is quite their own problem. And just some stuff to kind of build on a few things Some several people have said. Just knowing what the other tactics decks do that you're fighting against is so important. Like you can pick out those plays like Clarence was saying earlier, you know, he was anticipating that what was it, Watcher on the Wall card that he didn't do a certain play. So he just knew that that card is sitting in there, which is funny that I'm saying this because I don't read or remember my cards half the time anyway, but let alone knowing somebody else's cards. But for this kind of play, that stuff is so important. Don't worry, guys. We're working on getting Chris to read. <laughs> it's slowly and surely, but we're getting there. I actually used cards our last game, so I get Actually physically that. yell at him to get him to use cards? Like, Chris, use the card! Sometimes I just have Justin hold my cards for me and be like, here, play this. 
No, I, I think I think the point you make there, and, and the point that uh, the play that Clarence pointed out is is reemphasizing something I've said for a long time, and that is the uh, that is the fact that sometimes the the biggest X factor in this game is knowing your opponent's army, knowing the tricks that they have, knowing what they can do. I know that I get ragged and people call me a traitor and things of this nature because I played Lannisters and I played Night's Watch for a while and then I've, I've played Stark for a considerable amount of time. But I think it's really important to know what your opponent can do and know what cards they have in your hand, and that's a very big key to winning. So with that in mind, it's, it's interesting that Claren, Clarence mentioned that play with Watcher on the Wall because it's, it's a brilliant play, and it's, it's, that's a big part of winning the game is knowing and being able to predict that. So in, in my game against uh, Night's Watch in a different league, I completely predicted that my opponent put a unit in position to bait Grey Wind into him, knowing that statistically I wasn't going to wipe out a rank from his trackers, and I just knew that he had pathetic attempt in his hand. And there wasn't really any indication other than the fact that he kind of put that unit out there and I was able to play Winter is Coming, and if I hadn't had Winter is Coming, I wasn't going to send Grey Wind into that unit, and that was a pivotal point in that game. So with, with that in mind and, and transitioning into something else, Clarence, I just want to get your opinion. Um, Melisandre seems to be kind of the talk of the town right now, along with some of the Baratheon heroes and, and some of the, this gossip and some of this talk about Baratheons being so powerful and people are intimidated by them, I guess, on paper. Uh, I just want to get, as, as a high-level player, what is, what is your take on Melisandre? Because a lot of the consensus seems to be that she's incredibly overpowered, and, and a lot of people just flat out don't like her. But as a competitive player, how do you feel about her? And then we can transition into Carlo, who might have some relatively surprising stats about just how many games, in reality, uh, Melisandre is winning. Oh, I guess Clarence's internet dropped, so uh, we won't. We won't. Once he gets back on, we can get his take. But uh, we can lead into that with uh, with Carlo. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you let yeah. our viewers or our listeners know? Because I think I think they're going to be surprised. Yeah, I think people will be surprised when you read Melisandre. When you think about the way she plays, in that there is no counter um, Varys um, Varys triggers at an identical time. Therefore, the active player, the Baratheon player, can choose to have her effect to go off before Varys's effect. There is currently, that's the same, um, I believe, for um, Intrigue and Subterfuge from the Lannister deck. There is literally nothing you can do to stop Melisandre beyond having an NCU um, have no abilities in, t- in general from um, like a zonal effect or... Um, or one of the onboard objectives. She is so overtly powerful and she has such a big effect upon the game. She can, of course, destroy units in two, two successive activations. All these things feel like she should be dominating the, the competition, dominating games, and yet she wins a decent amount less than 50% of the time. When she's played, she is probably going to lose. And... That's really surprising when you look at it, but I think people overlook just how much investment goes into the damage that she does, how much of an investment she is, and how much she confines the rest of the build that you can create. She really limits you into how many activations you'll have. You'll have units that are either low unit count and you're sacrificing models from them. 
or you will be spamming cheaper units to try and keep your activation count high despite investing in this very expensive NTU, and you'll just not have as much strength on the table as you want. So I think it's, I, I agree that actually it's quite a negative play experience for the player to have to play against her because of how little interaction there is. There's very, to have something to have no counters makes it unenjoyable for your opponent, but the reality is she doesn't actually win. Yeah, and I mean, part of me wants to be surprised, and part of me doesn't uh, is not surprised. I've only played, uh, I've played with her twice and against her once, and all three times, granted, uh, she didn't do much, and that's because of uh, some pretty decent morale rolling for both me and my opponent. Um, but I find that the five points isn't too crazy because they have two three-point NCUs and uh, in a Stannis build, uh, Roos NCU is really awesome. So with all three of those, you know, with Shira, uh, Axel, and Roos, all as options, you can fit that five-pointer in so easily. I mean, I have a Roos build that's Roos, Mel, Axel, and then it's uh, six combat units. Um, but I definitely agree that it's I, – I, it tends to be kind of the – you know, that negative experience, kind of like with, uh, in my opinion, uh, Night's Watch uh, Catapults. They're the stone throwers. Um, I feel like usually, no matter what happens, either you're mad or your opponent's mad. Either she goes off and nukes something and your opponent's going to be mad, or she doesn't go off and and you get mad because you're like, I spent five points and she's continuously doing nothing it's same with the stone thrower you know on that oh man i missed you know i'm spending all these points and i'm missing oh i hit okay i decimated a unit i think there needs to be more gray area uh not an all or nothing either you decimate something or you do nothing i think that is in my opinion what lends to the unenjoyable experience is that you know either you're at one extreme and your opponent's not having a good time here or you're at the other extreme and you're not having good time and i think if there was some gray area it would fix that i think actually she would have been um far more enjoyable to play against without like looking at the precise numbers of how much damage she would have done in the old panic rules where there was a transition of how many wounds you would take because you know she would have put a negative on you but if you failed by one you'd take one wound if you failed by six you'd take six wounds that kind of um scale that transition would have been much nicer but because of the way panic currently works if she sacrifices three models does those plus three wounds you can so reliably do five six and seven wounds at a time and it's that six that really kills it because that means two activations is a unit removed from the board. If she was just doing five a time, if it was five, nobody would have a problem with it because you'd, you'd do five wounds, then you'd do five wounds, and the unit would still be alive. But if you do six wounds and then do six wounds, the unit is gone. And that's such a big difference to the mentality people have, which is it's only a few wounds, but it's a whole activation, and it's a whole thing that I can't counter as long as I've got a wound left, I can take money bags and I can start to come back. But that specific build that you're talking about, I mean, it's only been played by one player, but that Bruce 
um, Mel and Axel, um, Axel Florent list, it only won one of three games that it was played in. They're really low numbers, but, you know, it wasn't pushing people around. It wasn't dominating when it was played. And really, actually, the surprising thing is if you want to have your highest win rate with the Baratheons, you should be playing Axel Florent as a commander, it seems. That is what the stats say your highest win rate is. Um, so I think his value in terms of how amazing his tactics cards are, are really a big thing you're going to miss out on if you play into that triple threat list, which I, I, I think in theory on paper is so, so strong. I think the thing is, is in reality, Melisandre doesn't actually add up to everything she, you think she's going to add up to. Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty valid point. I was I was relatively surprised about the success of Axel Florin because I was so I was so intrigued by his uh standard three point NCU, uh particularly considering the uh prevalence of dogs in the meta. But I, I think I kind of overlooked his NCU version. But it looks like we have Clarence back really quick. So before we transition into some of the Baratheon NCU commanders and then kind of take a little further dive into the NCUs in general, I, I still would like to hear from Clarence as a competitive tournament gamer just his take on, on what he thinks of Melisandre and, and some of the play experience with uh, dealing with her. Just in general, what do you think? Because I think a lot of our uh, listeners and a lot of people in general on A Song of Ice and Fire are kind of uh, – rioting and, and having a fit over Melisandre. What, what is your personal take <laughs> on her? Yeah, so I um, played a lot against her, and um, I think I personally would not use her if I ran Baratheons, and it's for the reasons that I don't like using Varys. She, in my opinion, is far too much of a risk. Even at minus three, um, a lot of units are, are leadership six, and it's not incredibly hard to roll a nine um, or get a re-roll or... Uh, have a trick that lets you buff your morale. And if that happens, you may have killed three of your own guys for nothing. So to me, it's just too big of a risk to spend five points on. But I definitely have seen her used very effectively. I've seen her nuke two, uh, you know, a unit in two turns and gain an activation advantage, get a victory point. But again, for me, in a competitive play over a three- or four-round tournament, if she doesn't do what she needs to do in a key game you're going to lose and then, you know, you can't make it to the top. So for me, she's just too unreliable, but I, I, I have seen her potential and I do respect it. Fair enough. And that's a pretty good take. It kind of echoes what Carla was defending with some of the stats that support that she's, despite the perception that she's this incredibly powerful NCU, she's not really winning all the time. So I think your take on her is a pretty accurate take there is always a chance that they'll pass that painting test. And as prevalent as Starks are in the meta right now, they do have Dire Wolf's Fervor. And interestingly enough, with that card, the more damage that she's done to them, and maybe even in conjunction with Axel NCU, it's actually more likely that they're going to pass that last panic test, and she's going to waste her ability, and she's probably going to kill three guys for nothing. So I think it's a pretty accurate take. I've played against her while she is very frustrating. I've never actually lost against her, but she has pissed me off. I'm not going to Yeah, lie. for sure. She blew, she blew up a unit of Outriders, and it, it wasn't very fun. But uh, at the end of the day, I think Carlo's point is pretty accurate in that you kind of build your list around her. You can't really have four elite units and just peel three wounds off of them. So you're kind of tending to run a spammy kind of 
you're throwing cutthroats in there where they don't necessarily belong, and they're a lot easier to kill than the R'hllor faithful, but you can't afford to bring four R'hllor faithful units because you don't want to peel those wounds off of them and make them easier to kill. So I think the the consensus and the stats pretty much back up what the two of you guys have said. While she is very frustrating and she is a pain in the ass, I'm going to say that she's maybe not as bad as people are thinking that they are. But while we're on the subject of Baratheon NCUs, I know that some of the guys here in small council play these NCUs, but I'm very curious to take a, a, a deeper look at uh, Axel Florent as the NCU commander for the Baratheons, which uh, Carlo just mentioned is a very high-rated uh, commander for the Baratheons. And then let's talk about Courtney Penrose as well. I feel like he is a devastating commander with some incredible cards. So uh, I guess we can start with Carlo if you want to give the stats on those, and then we'll ask some of the guys who have played games and experienced him what you guys think about these newly uh, newly appointed NCU commanders for the Baratheons. So Axel in both his commander version and his NCU version, they neither saw loads of play because there weren't loads of Stannis lists, but they were both significantly above 50%. And Axel Florent um, as a commander was effectively the most powerful um, commander that the Starks could take. Uh, sorry, the Baratheons could take. Um, and then interestingly, um, Courtney Penrose is the second highest win rate for them. So I think that's really telling of the fact that they're struggling with such high unit costs, particularly with how good their seven-point units are, but it's so difficult to fit enough of them in and still have a decent activation. I think they're really, really strong into being an NCU-based faction right now. I know that I'm building Baratheon lists. And I'm running. I'm looking to run both Axel Florent as a NCU commander and Courtney Penrose as an NCU commander. I'm just going to forego all the advantages that you can gain in some game modes by having an on-field commander because the two playstyles are so different. But you just need that free activation, I think, with Baratheons right now. And both have good win rates, significantly higher than the average um, Baratheon win rate in the tournament. Uh, so with Courtney, uh, since we're talking about this, uh, I, I personally like him the best out of every commander for the Baratheons. That's my second faction. Um, the only other faction I guess I play. But uh, I think his... When I first saw his commander card, I was I was a little confused. I was like, oh, maybe that could be good, but it's easy to stop if you're the opponent. But after playing him a couple times, it's not that easy to stop if you're the opponent. First and foremost, I mean, if you activate him, you can target a unit, so you're guaranteed to at least heal D3, which is not bad. Like, if that's the worst that happens, I mean, still doing something useful. Uh, but I found that I, I was able to, I guess, bait my opponent into having to take the spot on the unit that I chose, or the opposite, where you can make your opponent second guess taking a free attack on a key unit or uh, healing wounds and removing tokens or, you know, just anything. I think Courtney's amazing. And then the fact that Baratheons are such a reactionary uh, force using defensive counter and counter plot and um, what surprise strategy, all three of those things are just amazing surprise strategy, especially just to get a little bit more card shuffling through. Uh, it it just it worked out perfectly every time. I think he's amazing, and he's probably my favorite commander 
maybe in the game right now. Plus, he's like one of my favorite characters in the book because he just tells Stannis to go screw himself. But then he gets thrown out of a tower. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really interesting because when I when I was playing Nightwatch, I gave Donald Noy a pretty fair shake. He was uh, initially one of my favorite commanders. I really liked uh, bulwark formation, and I really liked defensive counter on paper. I was never really able to pull off that defensive counter play because Nightwatch is similar to Baratheons where they suffer from a lack of activations. But I'm not even going to lie. When I played Courtney Penrose in some of those practice games where I wasn't quite ready for it, uh, defensive counter really worked my ass. Uh, Tully Cav uh, not having their abilities, uh, Berserkers losing their thundering on the charge, and losing the ability to play uh, the Hodor order. Because just like you, Clarence, I ran uh, Berserkers with Brandon Hodor. I think it's a phenomenal unit, and I actually ripped that off from Dave. So to give Dave credit where credit is due, uh, he was running that combination far before me, and I, I kind of warmed up to it, and they were pretty much my MVP in almost every game, along with the Outriders. You would think the Tully Cav might have been the unit that people were afraid of, but it was always the Outriders and Berserkers that did a lot of the heavy lifting. So with that said, uh, losing those key abilities to defensive counter was absolutely crippling for me because Starks are hyper-aggressive, right? So you want to set up that, that initial... First, uh, first activation of your round play, maybe a sudden charge, maybe a uh, an activation with the Tully Cav, and and defensive counter is just if you don't have a winner is coming, it is just completely crippling. It takes the wind out of the sails of all of those key Stark units. So, I think he's a very interesting commander, and I think he plays really well into Stark. I did have to play against him, and it was it was a game I damn near lost. Uh, Jason Ziri and I have a a little bit of a history. We ended up playing twice at Gen Con. So it was interesting that we got paired together in this matchup. But truth be told, he had me on the ropes that entire game. And uh, those Brandon Hodor Berserkers just pulled off some amazing combos at the end of the game to to pull me out of a mess in that game. But, uh, yeah, he definitely had me. So um, he and I have that, that type of history where, um, those games are really swingy at the end, but I, I attribute a lot of struggles that I had in that game to Courtney Penrose's cards. I want to echo uh, how great Courtney Penrose is. Um, I, again, I don't think many people saw him as a standout NCU commander in the beginning, but having played against him a couple of times, it's shocking how often his influence actually goes off. And I want to pump up the um, uh, some of us for our guild you guys are on because you guys recently put out a video between Tabletop Warrens and Blitz Minis. And in that game, in one of the turns, I think in a single round, uh, he gets to use influence three times, which is pretty pretty killer. But yeah, you know, healing D3 wounds on tanky draft units is really, really, uh, really annoying. And his cards are good too. His cards are really solid. I mean, not only does defensive counter a great card, but I think we all hate counterplot. And, you know, here it is in, in Baratheon form, which is, which is killer at the right time. Um, so yeah, you know, I think I think people are sleeping on Courtney Penrose, but he is a super strong commander. Yeah, I, I think both his uh, both his NCU ability and his cards are a little bit underrated right now. I sorry for a little bit of the noise. Let me change rooms. Um, I think that people are going to find, and it's interesting that you reference the the Song of Ice and Fire Guild, and in particular, I think you're talking about Yannick Burr, and he wrote an article 
kind of outlining some of the strengths of Courtney Penrose, and it's kind of put in my mind when I read that article, I was completely sold. Uh, me, personally, I don't think I really ever want to venture into Baratheon, but all of our listeners will be happy to hear that Brett is getting caught up on the lore, and I'm in season six of A Song of Ice and Fire, or not, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in season six of Game of Thrones, the HBO show now, so I am well aware of what Stannis does to his daughter, <laughs> and having two daughters myself, I, I think I just have to draw the line there, and I just, I can't ever play Stannis, and I know that the Baratheons are an interesting and intriguing faction, but on a personal level, I just can't do it. So, <laughs> but reading that, reading that Courtney Penrose article, as much as I dislike the Baratheon, I was pretty well sold on his commander. And then Yannick was kind enough to play some games with me, you know, in, in preparation for this event. And uh, he has really got a firm grasp on how to use that commander. And I think, I think people will start to learn that, uh, and I think Carlo can back this up maybe with some stats as well, this perception that you have to bring a field commander in some of these game modes, uh, Feast for Crows, uh, Dance with Dragons, Fire and Blood, these, com- these game modes that you almost feel like you're crippled if you don't run a field commander. I think people are going to be surprised that, that NCU commanders like Courtney Penrose, the High Sparrow, and uh, even Howland Reed are going to be a very solid choice in those game modes, even if you're giving up the additional bonus that you get from the ground commander. So... Carlo, uh, if you can chime in really quick, I don't know if you have those stats available, and if you don't, yep, maybe you yep. can. You know that you watch a All, shit ton of games, so <laughs> all, all ready to go. Um, yeah, what's what's really interesting? So so it's kind of like two arguments at once. Um, uh, taking an NCU commander is normally um, an easy route to taking three NCUs. Um, so there is both two things at play here. One is the higher activation count and the three NCU kind of play versus possibly playing into two NCUs. And that slightly confuses um, kind of what we have to look at when we talk about clicking an NCU commander or an on-field commander. So to put them into numbers, when you play three NCUs versus two NCUs, you win in the, from the tournament, you win 60% of the time to 40% of the time for the two NCUs. To put that into, into perspective, as strong as you might think that the Starks are, that's a more significant choice than any faction you might pick. The most significant choice you can make when you write a list is not what faction you picked, but if you pick three NCUs. That is going to give you a higher win rate than picking Starks. That feeds into an almost identical stat, which is, that when you pick an NCU commander, you have a 59% win rate versus 41% win rate when you pick an on-field commander. This is very interesting because it is, a, it is irrespective of what game mode you play. Some have higher and some have lower. The only game mode which we recorded which didn't favor an NCU commander was Fire and Blood, which is very obvious that he is quite literally giving out points every turn as opposed to having the option of maybe controlling a point for an extra VP. I think that for everybody outside of Rob, who hopefully will get time to talk about, that extra activation that you can buy is more significant than any other choice you can make in the game right now from the way the meta is kind of shaping up. Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting, but... 
I'm not overly surprised. Um, I was considering going into this tournament. I unfortunately I made a roost list, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everybody right now. And as you know, Carlo as the kind of the tournament organi- tournament organizer, I did not even run that roost list. That that roost list was not one. Well, didn't I, even look at it. I <laughs> I threw it. I kind of threw it together because I I felt like it might work, but I didn't even have the confidence to run that. So. Um, I was fortunate enough to play second, and I did run Rob all six of those games. Um, I guess my biggest regret in that tournament is if perhaps I had, uh, if perhaps I had made a Howland list like I initially felt inclined to do, I might have been more inclined to play that into the Dark Wings Dark Words scenario, and it might have helped me a little bit in that game that I lost, and perhaps. Uh, Ariakas could have kicked my ass on the top table, and uh, he still would have been first. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't have been second, but after having him on the show and hearing his uh, hearing his tactical approach to the game, uh, we we might have to play a game just to see how that would go. But uh, I wouldn't be really looking forward to that match. But uh, <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, but what's I really interesting about that is that what what's interesting about your other list is that Rob is effectively another way of taking an NCU commander because he brings with him an activation just as every NCU commander does, and yet he still manages to maintain his on-field influence in all those game modes that favor it. So I think that that's what really is setting Rob out as an absolute outlier of being incredibly powerful. I say that because he right now, uh, on the stats site, from the way the power rankings work, they, they all the results that go into it, both in the tournament, outside the tournament, how good the players are, they go into some pretty detailed mathematical calculations, and Rob is by far, by far the best commander in the game right now. And he performed incredibly well in the tournament. He won 70% of all his games. Other than a few commanders who only had a couple of plays, nobody came close to that. Hmm. It's really interesting, but again, I'm not surprised. Um, I played him, and there were a couple of moments where I... I kind of felt like an asshole. And in my initial match, just his, his order alone, out, out, I think he has phenomenal tactics cards, but his order alone is so powerful. In A Dance with Dragons, I drew a Baratheon-Renly matchup, and, of course, they were very slow. But essentially for that entire game, Rob just picked up a token, and he retreated from a unit of Warden. And I retreated every single round after that. And the reason for that is because I, I was confident in retreating from the wardens because I could disorder their charge every single time when they charged me. And I I felt so mean because no matter what my opponent did, they were never going to get re-rolls on that charge with those wardens. And I just had this one unit of wardens just chasing Rob across the battlefield. And it had to be an, an exercise in futility for my opponent. And I felt a little bit bad about it, but I definitely feel like Rob is a very dominant commander. And, and just like you said, a lot of the reason I justify taking him besides the fact that I like his cards is that he comes with that free activation. You know, he comes with gray wind and that pushes him in my mind as a, as a better choice in a lot of game modes than an NCU commander. And it's, it's the same for me with night's watch. I, I really favor John snow as a commander. He brings ghosts, but in, in John's case, you know, he brings it shall not end until my death. And so sometimes ghost is a, is a six-wound model instead of a two-wound model, or I guess a four-wound, because he returns with one wound left on him. But uh, 
that's a whole other subject. But um, I mean, it is a whole other subject, but it's really interesting because Rob is one of the best performing commanders in the tournament and in general. And yet, John, interestingly, was the worst performing commander for the Night's Watch, and he is the lowest rated Night's Watch commander right now on the site. I, I don't understand why they don't um, pair up in that way. Like, why... Obviously, Ghost got really, really nerfed. He, he lost so many of his abilities, and, and, and by de facto, John got worse. But John has a lot of the bonuses that, that Rob has, and yet, John is doing really badly right now. And, and that, that's not a statement for Night's Watch in general. Night's Watch are doing fine. Night's Watch have almost as high a win rate as the Starks. In most game modes, they do better than the Starks, and yet, John is not the cure he's not their strength he he's doing terribly you know what that sounds like to me carla that sounds like a challenge <laughs> <laughs> i'm willing to, i'm i'm going to accept that challenge and i, I think bet I'm, you won't I'm willing to, yeah I'm, yeah i'm willing what's to really dawn the but What's really um, going to get you guys going is uh, for Dave as well. Um, Brynden. Brynden is, Brynden is doing badly, badly, badly. Brynden, Brynden was by far the worst performing Stark commander and is generally doing incredibly badly too. Uh, Brynden is only marginally better than Renly Baratheon and, and Renly's the worst. So Brynden's just above and then John is just a tiny little bit above that. So all of those guys are not doing well. So you got to get in there, play your play your main boys because I, I know you I know you're big supporters of them um but you know yeah. something's not going right so they need some they need some heavy hitters to uh really get those stats up so I've got a one disclaimer <laughs> one disclaimer for Brett real quick he says it's a challenge and he's probably going to do this and that but we all know by the morning he's not going to remember anything he said so <laughs> we'll have to remind him <laughs> um as far as uh, Blackfish goes, I am super surprised. Uh, I mean, he is without a doubt my go-to. Uh, without, you know, if I was going into any big event, that is uh, be running. Yeah, and I think this highlights the um, the point of stats. And and like while numbers are interesting and they they raise a lot of questions, they don't always explain what's happening. It's very surprising for me to hear that John's doing the worst of the Night's Watch commanders. I think they've got a great stable of commanders, don't get me wrong. I think Othel's amazing. I think Alistair's amazing. I think Jor's amazing. Um, Donald, I think, uh, is the only one I've not seen a lot of. But Jon Snow is by far, like, the you know, the most annoying commander uh, on that faction for me. Just like Tyrion is the most annoying for me in Lannisters, oh, I, I can't stand fighting Jon and all the healing and... Oh, it's 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 extremely tough to um to take take over, uh and similarly Brendan, you know it's funny because I was thinking about if I was to run uh, my Starks again in another event, would I take Eddard again? Because I feel like my my regular gamers are learning to adapt to Eddard, and like I said, if you ignore Eddard, his cards are also pretty bad. And I'm looking at Brendan as a potential replacement because at least his cards can do other things for other units. So you know with their low win rates, it's really I think the next thing to ask is why, what, what is happening there? What is causing those low win rates? Um, you can look at each of the commanders um, as individual play pages on the stat site, and you can start to see um, like what they're playing into certain game modes. And we could really have like really deep conversations about where those things are going. But 
what we see from the tournament is just as you mentioned, we see we see Othel, Alistair, and uh, Jor. Those three that you mentioned seem to be the go-to's for Night's Watch. We see Othel and Jor, or Othel and Alistair, as the go-to pairing. They are all running Othel, and they're backing it up with one or the other, Jor and Alistair, of the people all doing well. Night's Watch. We don't see them in the top seven of the players who went undefeated or only had one loss, but we see a huge cluster of them just behind. They still actually did very, very well, and their overall win rate is barely behind the Starks. The Starks are a little bit different, actually. The Starks are quite interesting. We see Howland nearly all across the board. We see, we see so many Howlands up at the top. Um, but what we actually see is we actually see, you know, from yourself, we see Howland with Eddard. Brett, as he's mentioned, he actually used Roos instead of Howland, but then basically backed out of the decision and decided to only use his Rob. But I think you could basically call that a Howland and Rob combination. Behind that, we have Howland and Brynden. And then we start to see just a little bit of every commander in there. The, the Starks seem to be trying a ton of different builds. Um, in terms of their commander, with Howland being the most common kind of theme there. But there is a very, very strong um, takeaway that you can make, which is that of all the players up in the top seven, so the top seven, the players who went undefeated yourself, plus all the players who are in some ways joint second place um, with only one loss, they all ran nine or ten activations in their stock lists yourself you ran a ten and a nine brett ran a ten and a nine locks ran an eight and a ten and actually when you look at his specific results he only ever played the eight activation list once um locky played two nine activation lists and then hamon he ran a ten and a nine their average activation count that these top five player stock 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 players played they played an average activation count of nine and a half activations, which is crazy. Most factions in the game cannot build lists with that high an activation count. Yeah, and I think I've been spoiled by Starks in that sense. And I noticed that as I'm trying other factions, I'm playing a lot of Night's Watch nowadays, a lot of Free Folk nowadays. Uh, it's been super spammy for me. I, I run literally, you know, three to five units of conscripts in my Night's Watch army. I run, you know, four to six units of raiders. I love having high activations. I love that feeling of control. And I don't know if I could play very well into a Targaryen or Baratheon kind of list because I, I would be out of my comfort zone. I really like that high activation count, and I think it makes a big difference in the game. Yeah. So yeah, I think it, that people it, might look at the tournament and look at maybe Masters of Westeros and the things that I'm saying of, like, Starks coming one, two, and three. And they might say that Starks are broken, um, but I'm telling um, you, I'm really now as 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 a faction overall, Starks are not broken. There is only a very specific list which is continuously winning, and it has the same components that make it up every time. Every one of these lists in the top three includes Summer and Shaggy Dog. They nearly all include Stormcrow Mercenaries to reduce the cost of those attachments. So we can say that it's not a Stark problem. It's a very specific list. Direwolf problem. Not Direwolves in general, but that there is a way to use them right now. And when you build that 10 activation Stark list, 
it has a 76% win ratio. That is through the roof. That is going to guarantee a stark winner at every big event if you don't make a change, in my opinion. The change, of course, can actually be um, bringing out a counter to the list. But the problem right now for me is that Howland is the best counter, which then also kind of forces people towards this idea that the best counter, the best way to beat Starks is to play Starks, when really the counter, the strongest counters of Starks should exist outside of the faction. Maybe it's Axel, um, NCU for three points, but he's currently not being used enough to really make the Starks hurt. Yeah, and that's I definitely think, one uh, thing I fear as a Stark player is uh, Axel and why, you know, if I'm expecting there to be a decent amount of uh, Baratheon, I'm probably going to make one of my two lists not even have Wolves in it just so I don't give up those extra points. But I think an easy fix to Starks uh, in general would just be to turn Wolves into the same thing that the Bears are, so where... They're not giving additional turns because uh, they still are technically their own activation, but they're happening within the same activation as the attachment they come with. And I think without Wolves, uh, Starks definitely suffer, um, or I wouldn't say suffer, but they, they go back down to this kind of the same level as most every other faction. And then that just kind of leaves uh, Free Folk with that you know, super advantage of activations. But uh, I don't know. We'll see if you know that's something that they Simon does with the next big update or something. But yeah, I think uh, the cheap wolf activation is what kind of you know puts you know makes Starks uh, the ability to get that high of activation. I think it's defining the competitive meta right now. I it's not unbeatable. Of course, it's not unbeatable. But it's what you should expect to play against in almost every tournament. You should have to think about the way you build your list around, can I beat that list? And if that is such a large part of the game, then it just reduces the variety of what we see. When lots of people playing Starks promotes more people to play Starks, that just makes the game less interesting, make, makes it less, um, less, less, less matchups for us to consider, less, um, less options for player skill to come into the game, and more of we just see the same repeatable things again and again. So I think there's really, it's a really small thing, and like I said, I'd never seen it. This is totally new to me. I, in, until I started watching these games um, and seeing the same list appear again and again and again and dominate over and over again in the tournament, I'd never even considered how powerful it might be. But once I saw it, I was like, well, yeah, of course. Look at it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Like, what do you do? <clears throat> yeah, and... You know, that's why uh, in one of my two lists, at least, I always try to find some way to fit in something that's going to handle wolves. Um, if I'm Baratheons, I'm obviously going to be taking Axel or something. If I'm just running my Starks, I'm probably running Walder in at least one of my lists just to give me that ability to, you know, because if Walder can kill, let's say it's a three-wolf list, if Walder can kill three wolves, in the course of six rounds, let's say if the wolves don't heal, I mean, 
five points to give yourself three victory points, in my opinion, that's still a win, even if you didn't use his effect to really turn off any abilities, you know, other than the wolves every other turn. Um, but, uh, you know, just I think with Starks being so prevalent and, you know, you know, all over the place, even if you are another Stark player or any other faction, you need to run some way to just deal with uh, these cheap, uh, easy-to-kill solos. Even if it's uh, Harma with her, you know, bear, it may not be an extra activation, but killing that bear to prevent, like, some of the crazy combos with Harma and the bear is still, you know, something that you need to factor and try to, you know, take advantage of. Um yeah, with that, uh, I think we're going to wrap up. Uh, going a little over on time, but it's all right. Some uh, really awesome topics here. Uh, first off, I want to thank uh, all my hosts for being on. I want to thank uh, our guests, Carlo and Clarence. Um, congratulations, uh, Clarence, for first place, and you know Brett, for you, for second place. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, it was nice to see, uh, you know, not that I, you know, I love all you guys overseas, but it was nice to see uh, North America take first and second. I'm going to have to do a little brag there, but uh, yeah. oh, we'll see. oh, now, oh, see, you know, you know, Dave, I wasn't even going to bring it up. I wasn't going to bring it up, but now you said it. We're going to have to say it. When you look at the average finishing position of uh, Americans versus Europeans, the average American finished 10 spots behind the average European player. So, <laughs> more Americans so first, first you, 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 you shot yourself in the foot there a little bit, but yes, they did manage to take number one, Canada, number two, US, but uh, all the rest of the top 10 is dominated by the Europeans, except we can all, all bow down to the very few number of Australian entrants who uh, beat both of those methods. And I think Australia have got a really good competitive scene going on. They've got a big competition going on themselves at the moment. And, uh, yeah, I think um, the Australians have uh, really know what's going on, too. They, they, they performed really well. And, um, and, yeah, watch out for them. Yeah, and I, I think uh, and uh, you saying that brings up uh, something that I think um, we'll see in future tournaments because this was like kind of the first big one where, you know, we had a little bit of everyone over the world playing. I think, you know, this was a new experience for a lot of people that had never played, you know, you know, people from North America or vice versa. And I think in future events, we will get a more accurate uh, representation, just like the stats kind of are, you know, the more you get to play people from, you know, overseas or just, you know, areas that are nowhere near you with completely different metas, I think the more you'll be able to play against them better and it'll be a less, you know, less factoring of something new and more of, you know, pure, you know, uh, experience and uh, um, your talent as a player. Whereas I know some, you know, any new player you give them some new experience and you, there's no telling how the results really are going to come out. So I'll be excited to see like the next couple, uh, maybe like the third or fourth uh, big tournament. Once, you know, you've gotten to play plenty of games against people from areas, not of your own to see where, you know, everyone kind of falls, you know, whether or not, 
you know, Australia or even who knows, you know, if Ben uh, can get some of his guys from Singapore to uh, jump in there and, you know, get some, uh, you know, take some of the top spots, you never know. So it'll be interesting to see. But uh, with that, we're going to close out. Uh, and, um, again, thank you guys for coming on. Uh, follow, you know, Small Council Radio if you wouldn't mind. You know, that's definitely the best thing that can help us is liking our page, uh, following us, um, and sharing out the page. Uh, I know we talked about Patreon in the past, but I think we've decided to just do raffles uh, with unit boxes and then take uh, any extra to pay for the um, for the show and to just get more unit boxes to give out uh, stuff uh, to you guys. I mean, um, we do whatever we can to help you guys, you know, uh, get some cool uh, swag. Definitely, um, you know, sharing uh, if you can't do the raffles, uh, definitely share out the page. I think there's something like, what, seven, 8,000 people on the main Facebook page, and right now we have about 630 followers uh, and likes. So definitely uh, keep sharing it out. There's a lot of people I know that are out there that uh, don't know we exist. So, um, you know, if, you're, if you listen to us and you're gaining the group, uh, you know, when you meet next time, you know, just – mention us uh, to them. Maybe they start listening, and that'll definitely help, help us out a bunch. Uh, if you have not already, sign up for a song of ice and fire stats, uh, com and make a profile, and then you know get your, uh, your gaming group to do it as well. Every time you play, just submit your stats, and you know, especially like you were saying, Carlo, if there's uh, someone that isn't doing very hot, and you know that they're better than what they're being represented, then you know, play some games with them, get some wins, and start submitting them. Uh, otherwise, you know, like uh, Blackfish, for me, in my opinion, he's easy top five commanders in the entire game. But, you know, obviously that's not showing through the stats. Uh, so if I want that to change or if anyone else wants that to change, you know, you're going to have to get out there, you know, get some games in, and, you know, just remember to submit them. And, you know, no, you don't have to submit them right away. You know, just jot them, jot down the information uh, on a scrap piece of paper at the end of every game. You know, if you go on a Saturday and get, like, two or three games in, and then submit them that night or the next day or something. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be like, oh, man, i got to sign in right now and put my game in. You know, just do it when you got some time, and, you know, you'll find that uh, it's – doesn't take much at all especially Carla I think you uh, you uh, changed it to where you don't have to submit as many uh, of the details you just have to submit the factions and the victory points um, so that's yep, always trying uh, to make the submissions you know. easier so um, yeah there's, there's there's a few less requirements now and um, hopefully everybody can submit their old data even if they don't have all the information from the time so every, every little helps and uh, we're going to repost, I think we did before, but it might be like a couple weeks old now. We're going to repost uh, on our page the um, A Song of Ice and Fire stats uh, link so that you guys can go there to find the way to log in or to create a login so you guys can start doing that. Um, and then uh, I also definitely want to shout out uh, A Song of Ice and Fire Guild. That is uh, our new website where a bunch of us content creators have uh, created a 
um, website where you can find all of our content in one place. And we have uh, every month we do a drop uh, that is uh, themed specific from all the different content creators that uh, is more often than not is almost completely exclusive to the guild where you're going to find it there rather than on our specific pages. Uh, us at Small Council Radio, we do all of our show live and they go straight to our uh, blog talk radio and all of our other places. So we're going to start doing uh, some battle reports. In the, I know that we have a lot of Games Workshop uh, fans out there, either uh, past or present. Um, we're going to be doing it in the old uh, Games Workshop style battle reports where we're going to take some pictures and uh, write up a uh, write it up and post it uh, in that format um, to kind of give some guild exclusives there as well because uh, you know and then we might do some bonus episodes where we do them on Discord where they're not live that way we can submit them on the um, the guild exclusively so definitely check that out if you want uh, all of our content from uh, six different creators in one spot and you want to um, uh, you know find it all in one spot and you want to support all of us especially if you know you're only listening to us and maybe one other person you know go there you know look at the other content creators and you know see if maybe their uh, their content interests you and then uh, another shout-out I want to do is uh, for, you know, local gaming groups. Definitely try to support your gaming shops. They're, you know, around us anyways. They're all starting to open back up. And uh, maybe if they're still closed by you, you know, see what you can do to help them. Um, one I want to shout-out is our local that we usually don't do. Um, we've been uh, shouting out other ones. But uh, this week, we definitely want to shout out uh, most of our, uh, I think, uh, me and three of the other hosts here. Our local is Games Plus in Mount Prospect. Definitely check them out. See if, uh, you know, there's anything they got. They're a huge store. They've been around for a long time. I want to say, I think it's like 40 years or something. I'd have to double check. But it's, I mean, they've been around easily longer than I've been alive. Uh, so they have... You know, they own their shop, so they're able to get a lot of, uh, um, they're able to hold a lot of product, and they have just about anything you can think of gaming-related, and they have some old stuff, too. Uh, so definitely check out their website. They're willing to do, uh, you know, if you email them, um, and they can uh, ship some stuff out to you. So that's Games Plus and Mount Prospect. Uh, and then, you know, that's, that's mostly if you don't have a local of your own. Uh, definitely try to support your local uh, whenever possible because that's, you know, that's the place you get to go to play your games uh, in person. And, you know, without them, then, you know, your really only place you can play is at your own house. And when you do that, it's fun and all. I do it myself, but you don't meet new people. Uh, you can't expand your player base very easily. So definitely uh, keep that in mind. Um, and then another thing is on our Facebook page right now, uh, I uh, posted at the beginning of the show, it's a new contest. Go on there and submit uh, under the comments of the post your funniest ice and fire meme. Um, the, the winner will be voted on by me and the other uh, small council hosts, and the winner will get a, uh, uh, a two-dimensional... Uh, matte terrain set from playmat.eu so they're basically the 
exact same size terrain as the ice and fire terrain that you get in the starter boxes, but they're made out of the matte material that uh, you would play on. And the reason for this is, one, it actually, uh, because they're flexible, they're, you're able to save a lot of space when you store them. But uh, the main reason why I got a bunch of them was when you put them on top of a mat, so if you're playing with a mat um, for your board and you put them on top of there, they don't move almost at all. Like, you would really have to, like, bump into them hard. But if, you know, you're just playing a regular game, you know, they're going to stay put, and you're not going to have to worry about your terrain constantly going all over the place. So if uh, that sounds like something you definitely want to try to get, you know, submit your best meme on our Facebook page, and uh, we will be uh, voting on it and announcing the winner at next week's show. So um, and with that, like I said, just uh, follow and share us out, and that's definitely the best thing you can do for us. And um, with that, this is the small council radio and it is dismissed. <laughs>